Hi, welcome to Talk Class, the OECD's education podcast. I'm Clara Young, and I work in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. In this episode, I'm talking to Sanjay Sarma. Sanjay is the Vice President for Open Learning at MIT, and he's overseen many of MIT's online learning systems, including MITx and OpenCourseWare. He and Luke Yoquinto are also the co-authors of a book that came out last summer called GRASP, The Science of Transforming How We Learn. Sanjay is also a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT, so he's a practicing teacher. Hi, Sanjay. Thanks for coming on this podcast. It's uh, lovely to see you, Clara. A pleasure. The OECD just carried out a third survey in early March on how education systems are dealing with the pandemic. Not surprisingly, to the question about which forms of distance learning schools have been using in 24 countries, the overwhelming favorite was online platforms. But what we're hearing back from teachers and students and from you is that the virtual classroom is the worst of both worlds. So what's going wrong? Yeah, Clara, the reason that uh, I say that and others say it is because people confuse this virtual remote learning with uh, online learning. It's not. Good online learning is pre-recorded videos, which are very carefully crafted um, and they're asynchronous. So a student can pause it, you know, rewind. Uh, and the problem with our regular classroom is, in fact, I'm not a huge fan of lectures to begin with, you know, um, because, you know, a student sitting in, in the back of a 100-person classroom is socially distanced to begin with, but at least there's a little smidgen of a human connection. And what a Zoom lecture or, a, you know, video conference lecture does, it's, it has neither the benefits of asynchronous online video nor the, that little smidgen of human connection from being in person. So it's the worst of both worlds. And sure enough, you know, it's uh, we can see it. We just, the, all the changes, we can now see what's going on. Right, so. right. Uh, in about half of your book is devoted to uh, cognitive science and, and, and everything that we've been learning about the brain so far and how we can take those concepts and to make learning and teaching better. What would you say would be the handful of key concepts that we should be putting to use in education and perhaps especially in this context of digital education right now? Even before I describe the handful, let me give you a share, a quick insight. It's sort of uh, something I discovered from looking at all the science. I expected something cold and clinical, but what I discovered was a pattern that was both warm and intuitive. Essentially, we are uh, evolved to learn. That's what childhood is. We are evolved to teach. That's what parenting is. So the more one can, and even with adult education, the more we can reflect on how we as parents teach, uh, which includes, for example, not giving long lectures, right? My daughter says, Daddy, don't lecture me, used to say. I say, darling, that's what I do for a living, right? Don't give long lectures, right? Give 10-minute chunks, number one. Number two, at the end of 10 minutes, have a discussion, probe the student's understanding. That's actually called the testing effect. Not high-stakes tests, but just a discussion, right? Um, the third thing is uh, space out the learning. Um, don't try and cram an hour's worth of lecture into one sprint, you know, do 10 minutes, then uh, uh, do another 10 minutes of a different topic, and then come back and remind the student a day later, a week later, a month later about the thing they learned. So that's called space retrieval. Interleave, uh, one of the, what that means is mix things up a little bit because the brain likes contrasts. So if you're teaching a student 
how to calculate the surface area of a sphere versus a cone, don't do sphere, 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 cone, cone, cone. Do sphere, cone, sphere, cone, sphere, cone, because it's the act of loading the understanding. That's when the learning occurs. It's not once you loaded it, you're just doing the same thing repetitively, right? By the way, these lessons apply just as much to sports. And I wish we brought the same level of science to learning and education that, uh, uh, you know, athletes get on the basketball court or football uh, or the football arena. So uh, those are just some, but I could go on and on. You know, here's a, another very interesting thing. Turns out when you're, obviously when you're hungry, the body generates saliva, right? The equivalent of the brain for hunger is curiosity and the equivalent of saliva is a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Make people curious. That's half the battle. Everything else follows. All of these, I wish we would do. In your book, you you discuss all this and then all kinds of interesting learning techniques and little experimental schools and certain programs at MIT. But I would say that at the end of the day, when we finish reading it, your concern is always, how do we scale up this kind of program? How do we maybe make it possible for as many people as possible to learn this way? So many of the concepts that you're talking about are actually quite easy and inexpensive to implement into traditional schools. That's absolutely right. Look, parenting by definition is harder to scale. I have I have a friend who has triplets. It's difficult, right? <laughs> um, but um, what we do in, in educational system design is figure out a way to scale things. The problem is when you ignore the lessons and do what's convenient, that's where you end up painting yourself into a corner, which is where we are right now. But the way to implement this in schools, first of all, is don't waste time lecturing because a lot of these tricks are easier to apply with online education, right? And I'm talking about things like Khan Academy, Three Blue, One Brown on YouTube. There's a treasure trove of beautiful content on, on YouTube. And then if you take what we do with these massive open online courses with assessments and so on, um, then you can apply some of these tricks much more easily online. Replace the lecture uh, with then coaching, curiosity, field trips, hands-on. And that's essentially a multi-dimensional description of what Sal Khan and others refer to as a flipped classroom. I'm just giving you a much more nuanced version of it. Right. And yes, it is applied to it is possible to apply these tricks at scale. It is possible. We just have to have the wherewithal, the discipline, and the res resolve to do it and to change the systems to enable it. Well, I mean, this is probably the time to do it with the pandemic sort of cracking everything open. This is an opportunity to quite massively change the way we teach and learn and use these flipped classroom techniques as you as you talk about. Oh, without a doubt. Look, I mean, how tragic will it be if we go back to classrooms that look like Zoom lectures, you know, and we look at each other and go, this is what we were yearning for. You know, when nature confiscated our ability to be together, uh, now that we've gotten it back through vaccines and all the strife we've been through, we just recreated what we had before. What a tragedy that would be. Well, I, I wonder if some of the reservations we will have, that education systems will have towards making reforms is some of the feedback that we've been getting about online learning. I mean, when you and Luke Yaquinto wrote the book, it was before the pandemic. But even so, you were already worried about that online learning, if it wasn't used properly, if there wasn't, as you said, a human being in the mix who students could turn to. And in many cases during this pandemic, that has been the case for a lot of more unfortunate students, that it was going to turn students off school. And you know, now that the world's gone through this crash course of remote learning, 
it could be possible, you know, the best, worst case scenario, the final conclusion would be, nah, online learning, it just doesn't work. Do you have that fear? Yeah, I absolutely have that fear. <clears throat> this is not the first time, right? When you deploy technology and you do it wrong, you know, you end up creating a barrier, you know, to, to, to the technology. And I think uh, this is what we feared all the while, that people confused remote learning with online learning. What you have right now is remote learning, right? That's why it's the worst, the worst of both worlds. If you put your finger on it, I am very worried that people will confuse this with the nirvana that we should be achieving. This ain't the nirvana. This was a jury-rigged um, heroic action in the face of a pandemic, but this is not what we have done if we had the time. So how should we proceed now that we're, you know, at least in some countries, we're going back to school, going back to the classroom. There is an opportunity for making some quite significant changes. What's the priority? How should we proceed? What should we begin with? Well, let me say that, first of all, let us all uh, sign a compact that one-way conversations are what we want to eliminate. If you start with that, everything else follows, actually. If the professor is standing there speaking for 70% of the time, 80% of the time, or 90% of the time, something's wrong. Right? Okay, so how do you prevent that? Well, now, without a pandemic, hopefully in some countries it's going to be a long time. I know it's not even close, but uh, in some countries it's uh, the end is closer. Start recording videos. Look at the the facilities available on YouTube and other channels. It's amazing stuff. Stunning. Stunning. I mean, I would struggle to give a lecture like that, you know, and distill the concepts down so beautifully. You look at that and start creating lesson plans that incorporate it and incorporate students actually acting, discussing, doing, rather than just passively listening and tuning out. I think that should be the starting point. All I'm saying is that there's lots of videos out there already on YouTube, right? right? Uh, like, let's say you wanted to teach, I don't know, uh, multiplication or something. There's beautiful content, but the multiplication is very basic. Let's say even a historical concept, right? World War II, right? There are a lot of videos that show, you know, the the expansion of the uh, of the empire and you know the battles and so on. It's actually very, very uh, they're very good videos and a great way to learn. So try and figure out what I'm saying to teachers is figure out how to flip your classroom so that your lesson plan is one in which students watch those videos and in the classroom. Students and you are doing something, right. playing out something. What would happen if the Battle of Midway had not occurred? What would happen if the Battle of the Bulge hadn't occurred? You know, what was Rommel's role in in uh, in Africa? You know, whatever it is, any topic, parse it and have them play it up. That is learning. Right. Listening ain't learning. Now, I'm sort of thinking that okay, now that in the U.S. the schools are finally opening, and you know, schools have been opening and closing in countries back and forth since the pandemic started, uh, we're now really talking about steep learning losses and trying to grapple with that. Now, many people are looking to personalize online learning to help target exactly what the gaps are. Do you think this is a silver bullet for catching up post-pandemic? Uh, it's a silver bullet if it's done right. You know, if we pile on more of the uh, bad stuff, it won't. It might do more damage. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the catch up, we have to embrace the future rather than sort of drag the past into this new technology. We have to sort of rethink the way we do it. And my worry is that we're all, of course, everyone's busy and everyone's catching up and everyone's got their own personal struggles. And I don't mean to dismiss that. But where the leaders of schools need to come in is enable systems where these heroic teachers 
can actually get ahead of this a little bit because if they're playing catch up, the bad stuff is what we'll end up doing, which is Zoom lectures. Exactly. Let's delve a little bit more into machine learning enabled education software. It's personalized, so it adapts to each learner and it can be very cost effective, which is something education ministries must have on their, you know, really be really thinking about. But you have some strong reservations about it. What are they? Absolutely. Look, I work in AI and you know, MIT is sort of at the center of AI. And I think it's a bit of a people uh, naturally, I guess, and uh, the press doesn't help, tends to hype up what AI is. You know, if I talk to a young student and a brilliant young student and the student doesn't understand friction, it really, I have to almost psychoanalyze where they've misunderstood. You know, the question they might ask me is something like, if friction points backwards, how does a motorcycle move forwards when the wheel spins? And I have to explain to them, no, no, you have it backwards, actually. In the case of a motorcycle, actually, it's a friction that's pushing the motorcycle forward. And you got to sort of do that. There is no AI system that can do that. Do not kid yourself. There are AI systems that will do things like automatic grading. You know, like if a student writes a formula, we can grade it. That's cool. And that's what we do with massive open online courses. But somehow to conflate that spectrum of uh, intelligence and the things that a teacher can do and a student can benefit from into AI, that's a mistake I'm concerned about. AI will not solve the problem. Flip the classroom, empower the teachers. The teachers will solve the problem. AI can take some stuff off the plate for the teacher. Like, you know, a student wants to know, when is the exam due? Well, a chatbot can answer that. Focus on that right now. But do not assume somehow AI can replace the teacher because we're not even close. Okay. And then there's also the surveillance techniques that we need to be careful about that monitor students' progress, like eye sensors that monitor eye blink rate and things like that. What's the most important thing that we need to watch out for in, you know, in this regard? Well, look, it's very simple. One of the things that we've already made this mistake before in my book, in our book, Luke, and I talk about the battle between Dewey, who was really the hero, and Thorndike. Essentially, he thought he understood neuroscience, but really he did not. I mean, it was early days. He was a brilliant researcher, but he sort of declared victory. And then the behaviorists, you know, Thorndike and then Pavlov and then Skinner, they try to treat students, treat students like pigeons. You know, you give them reward, they'll do this. And if you don't give them a reward, they'll do this. And in fact, our school systems, you could argue, are based on the victory of the Thorndike philosophy or the Dewey philosophy. What we do know is there's an unbelievable amount about learning about the brain we do not understand. And there's actually almost magical, almost mysterious, you know, properties, emergent properties, because 86 billion neurons doing all sorts of things. So it is arrogant to feel that somehow we can monitor eye movement or something and make it better because the negative consequences are far worse and far uh, sort of less understood. So we're not even ready for that. Don't do variables. Don't do brain interfaces. Just fix the system right now. Uh, you know, the Thorndike school of thought, which, of course triumphed in the end and, and, and is what why schools are the way they are now in general is uh, one of the reasons why we have such what you talk call winnowing in education or, or such a strong sorting system where students who don't perform as well in that kind of system are kind of discouraged from pursuing more studies and yeah this thought of winnowing this desire to winnow first of all it's a conflict of interest right? Because the teacher has to transform and winner as give grades. I think that's a conflict. And what happens is pretty soon you start uh, leaning on the winnowing side and less on the transforming side. Which parent would do that? Right? Again, if you go, go to the parental analogy, parents don't winnow, right? They're transforming every 
every one of their children to become as successful as they are, they can be given their interests. So uh, so that's point number one. Point number two, if winnowing had driven, you know, sim, uh, you know Europe uh, in the last three centuries, we wouldn't have had Michelangelo. We wouldn't have had Van Gogh. Van Gogh would have been winnowed out a long time ago, you know. Steve Jobs would have been winnowed out. So, I mean, again, it's based on this hubris and this arrogance that somehow we have these metrics with which we can, we can determine excellence. Now, using an American analogy, we don't select uh, quarterbacks based on how high they can jump. We judge quarterbacks or you know, tennis players based on how well they recover from an injury and their grit and their courage and their creativity and, and their ability to play, you know, if it's a tennis player, you know, there's a rain delay and they've got to play two five-set matches back-to-back and they pull it off, you know. That's what we're looking for. How do you win, How do you come up with the metrics for winnowing? And that's, again, part of the hubris that we're caught in. You know, I, I'd like, actually like you to talk a little bit about, about the uh, MicroMasters program I mean, talking about the sorting, because you've figured out a system that casts a very wide net and uh, gets a lot of people into the program, and some of whom end up doing the second part of the course, the master's at MIT in the labs. It seems to be one answer anyway to the, to the, to the winnowing problem and being more inclusive. Yeah, so um, what we did with the MicroMasters, we said... Uh, Look, why do we winnow? Partly, one of the reasons we winnow is because there's not enough room in a physical classroom. That's one of the reasons, you know, selection starts and then it just goes downhill from there, right? Then we select, 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 assuming that you know how to select. So what we did with the MicroMasters, we said in an online class, the capacity is infinite, really. I mean, the marginal cost of an additional student is very, very small. So we said, no admissions. Anyone take it. Anyone. And then, and just in our four or five MicroMasters at MIT, we have almost a million people enrolled, Right. And then they do it at their own pace. It's like playing golf. In golf, you're not playing an opponent. You're playing the course, right? You're playing nature. And you do as well as you can. And if you finish, you have your MicroMasters, right? And by the way, if you have your MicroMasters, then you can use your MicroMasters to apply to school, which is a little bit of winnowing, but now it's based on your own achievement. And it's not based on some random metrics we made up. Uh, Now, of course, uh, even the MicroMasters is an online course, right? So could we judge how good a quarterback is with the MicroMasters? Probably not. But it's a much deeper understanding of the student's capability, and and they get an achievement. It's a micromasters. You know, talking about credentials, because we're we're very much working on that. If we are to encourage lifelong learning, we need to figure out a system of credentials where people can do all different kinds of training, like something in an institutional, uh, you know, a, a recognized program like micromasters or on the job training and be able to have credentials that link them into a recognized, let's say, institutional system. You said something in your book about a modular distributed student transcript where people could mix and match traditional, non-traditional learning credentials. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, our system is very monolithic right now, right? And it's also, frankly, it's in a university's interest. If a student gets, I don't know, 200 credits, they finish. If they get 199, they've dropped out. You know, and that's sort of, what is that? So it's 1990 and 200 credits, 100%. That's basically how we treat it. And it's, uh, I think that uh, it's almost hegemonistic sometimes of the way universities can reel the transcript. So what we want to do is unbundle the transcript and make it the rather approvable record of the student's achievements. And to do that, you have to go to a more granular credential system as well. The MicroMasters is an example. We have many students with multiple MicroMasters. 
And the thing about these uh, credentials is that I think it's the future because it's not just for young people, but working adults like you and I, right? You and me, right? I mean, I right now would love to get a micro-credential in uh, in machine learning. Well, actually, I know machine learning, but some other field, right? I'd like to get a micro-credential. As a professor, I don't need it, but let's say I'm working in a job. I would love to you know, stay on the treadmill, go to the gym, the education gym every week. Our contract is basically go to the gym for four years and you're ready for life. I mean, we don't do that with exercise, so we've got to change it. And so we have actually, since we wrote the book, uh, enhanced us further, and we call it Agile Continuous Education, ACE. So it's a treadmill that consists of three steps, online credential, an in-person boot camp, because some things need in-person activity and an internship. And the idea there is, let's say you want to learn machine learning, learn it online. Even machine learning is a team sport. Go work with people, go through a hackathon, implement something, see how they think about it, do an internship at the company, right? And now you have expertise. And then, you know, you want to do advanced machine learning, go through the cycle again. So we call it ACE, the Agile Continuous Education. You also talked about a course at Florida International University Law School, which is a course on learning how to learn. And that that course was so successful that it helped a lot more students pass the bar exam. And FIU became a top-rated law school. That's something that we could teach already in elementary school or kindergarten, many of the concepts, no? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, there's so many tricks. Again, you know, if we brought the same level of results-orientedness and surprisingly humanity, they'd go hand in hand. We can be more human and more results-oriented. If we brought that to, to learning as we did to sports, you know, interval training, right, in sports, it's transformed uh, most sports. What I'm describing is sort of like interval training for learning. And uh, that's basically what the, the university did, and they improved their, their outcomes, extraordinary improvement. Why don't we bring that to school? I think we can. And that's basically what we describe in the book, but that's also what you can do with combining online with in-person. I mean, in PISA 2018, one of the questions that we had was on growth mindset. And one of the findings was that students who disagreed with the statement that one's intelligence is something that one can't change very much, scored 32 points higher in the reading test than students who agreed with that statement. Without a doubt. I mean, it's called the growth mindset. Carol Dweck, celebrated uh, psychologist at Stanford. I mean, that's just one of all these lessons we should be learning. I mean, we're practicing, in my view, teachers who are instinctive actually do a great job. But often, I think the system imposes dogmas on them, which are not necessarily based in science. Okay, so I think that's pretty well all the time we have. Thanks for speaking to me, Sanjay. Thank you. Such a pleasure. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about what we've been talking about, read Sanjay Sarma and Lucio Quinto's book, Grasp, The Science Transforming How We Learn. And to keep up with OECD work on education, have a look at our Twitter page, at OECD, E-D-U, skills.